Welcome listeners to another episode of Serious Coin, the podcast where we have rich conversations about wealth. I'm your host, Kelly Willis-Green. It's a common refrain that money doesn't buy happiness, but does it lead to mental health problems? Why are the wealthy three times more likely to struggle with addiction than the rest of the population? And why are children raised in affluent homes at significantly higher risk of mental health problems than their lower income peers? Is there a link between wealth and mental health ailments? Someone who knows a lot about this is my guest today, Jan Gerber. He's founder and CEO of Paracelsus Recovery. Based in Switzerland, it's the most exclusive addiction and mental health clinic in the world. They provide ultra-discreet, hyper-customized, holistic treatment for the world's elite. We're talking titans of tech, inheritors of old money fortunes, A-list actors and athletes, heads of state and members of royal families. At Paracelsus, they typically take in only two or three clients at a time, and they go deep, treating all manner of maladies, from substance abuse to eating disorders to depression, anxiety, and various personality disorders. It was fascinating talking to Jan about the mind-body-spirit connection to our mental health, and there are lessons in what he had to say for all of us. We also talked about the concept of imposter syndrome and its prevalence among the financially successful. We discussed the connection between creative genius and mental health conditions, and the one thing Jan says most wealthy people need to learn the hard way. But first I asked Jan how a biz school graduate who was adamant he would never work in healthcare ended up founding a treatment center that has set the new standard for mental health care globally. Here's what he had to say. Like many of the more interesting founder stories, it's not like I sat down and it's like, okay, what could be an interesting business opportunity? You know, and then make a plan and then get your funding and take a few detours and right time, right place. Long story short is my dad's a psychiatrist. My mom's a clinical nurse specialist. I remember very clearly telling myself, I will never go into healthcare. <laughs> Every day you're confronted with so much suffering and then you take that home. How do you deal with that? So I took a detour. I studied business administration, finance, went into consulting for banks, insurance companies and all that. But I always had the entrepreneur in me. I knew that one day I'll build my own business. And I did. Basically, what happened was a friend of the family, they called my parents, they look, we have a guy, he's a CEO of a stock market listed company, he struggles with drinking, and he cannot go to any plastic rehab because there's a massive stock market valuation risk, nobody can find out, can we help? And then he moved into the guest room at my parents' place, and we found a butler and a yoga teacher and you know, a few people around. And then we realized, and I, you know, as the entrepreneur, also realized, yes, there is a business opportunity, but there's also an unmet need. There is suffering there. There is a demographic of people who do struggle and who, when it comes to accessing appropriate mental health care, they're like a minority. They don't have access to proper, culturally competent, confidential, uh, on that level, mental health care. So that's why we decided to create this concept. And then it just evolved from there. I know that you deal with a very special demographic, very rarefied demographic, people with fabulous wealth and power, and yet they are suffering from some sort of mental health ailment. And in fact, one of the statistics I learned through you was that the wealthy are in fact three times more likely to be battling problems of addiction and substance abuse than the average population. Is there a link between wealth and mental health issues? Does wealth automatically lead to mental health problems? 
No, but it comes along with a suitcase full of risk factors and potential pitfalls. I think there is, at least in some countries in Europe, if you win the lottery, you have a mandatory counseling about purpose and what do you do? Because otherwise, it can just be overwhelming. And I think wealth, in a way, or if you just talk about money as a measure of wealth, it's neutral. It can just be very powerful. It can be hugely constructive. It can be hugely destructive. It's like if you have a tank full of kerosene, if you're not careful with it, a lot of damage can happen. Somebody else on my show one time described money like water. It can be nourishing, replenishing, or it can be hugely destructive. And you can drown in it. Exactly. So Jan, what are some of the risk factors that you mentioned that come along with these suitcase of issues? There's a whole bunch, but what we see more often than not is topics around purpose or lack of purpose. Loneliness is a massive factor. Who can I trust? Am I loved for who I am as a person? And often the kids growing up in wealth are primed to be careful with who they trust. And that automatically is a big risk factor for loneliness. And we are social beings. And dating is much tougher if anybody you meet kind of knows or understands that you also come with significant wealth and possibilities. For instance, intermarrying or dating somebody else off fame, and it's similar with wealth. You see more often that people can look for partners in similar wealth segments. These are just two examples. Affluent neglect is a massive topic. When you hear neglect or emotional neglect, you wouldn't automatically think of families of wealth or parents of wealth neglecting their children. And often that doesn't happen out of ill will or not being interested in the well-being of your kids. But very often, especially in business families or political families, families of wealth, the parents often have some kind of role. And even you know, families who sold their business, the parents still play a role in society, in charities, go into politics. That takes a lot of time. That's not your nine to five, and then you're at home and have time for your kids. There's crucial years in a kid's development where presence or absence of the primary caretakers, i.e. the parents, can have a massive impact that basically then feeds through the whole rest of the life. So that's something that we often see as one of the reasons why then somebody struggles later in life. And that's a very tricky one also because trauma is something that does happen, did happen, and somebody can figure out, okay, I was abused or I had an accident or I lost a relative. But the neglect is actually trauma of something being absent. Love, time, attention, playtime, rough and tumble play with your parents that gives you a sense of love and belonging and also safety and also safe place to test out your boundaries. Nannies and other caretakers who mean well, they can't give you that same type of environment to healthily test your boundaries and grow up as a kid. So all of that inadvertently will lead to problems. And then some kids are better prepared. Some go through this unscathed. So personality? It's personality. You know, more sensitive often means that type of setup could possibly lead to more problems than if somebody just has a personality uh, where this uh, might not matter so much. So the sensitivity is interesting as well, because Another statistic that I learned is that there seems to be a link between creativity, the artist personality, and bipolar, depression, anxiety, schizophrenia even. Tell me about that link. Yeah, you're absolutely right. If you look back into history, a lot of the amazing artists, but also creators in the, in the business and political world had massive struggles, massive struggles. Now, when we go back with today's insight into psychology and psychiatry, well, we can say, well, Van Gogh probably suffered from uh, schizophrenia. I think it boils down to that creativity, it can be an outlet or self-medication of pain. 
basically a coping mechanism. And then also be bipolar, often we see ADHD with very successful creative people as well. It's also that if your mind just keeps driving you and you can't stop thinking, that means you also can't stop creating. And then often perfectionism comes in with somebody's attachment issues or self-esteem issues. Often that can lead to kind of perfectionistic tendencies, which can result in amazing things, be it artwork or multi-billion dollar international companies, but a lot of pain and suffering attached because it's this drive from that pain that then drives to that output of creativity. So in an ideal world, somebody afflicted like that can find a way to still create, but also deal with, heal from, or just tolerate, or learn to tolerate the pain in such a way that it's not an obsessive cycle full of suffering, but actually creativity can be seen as a beautiful output of struggles, but in the end, kind of worth the price. Learn to harness the creativity in a positive way. Yeah. And it's interesting as you describe it, because those traits I'm listening, I'm thinking, well, those are often the qualities for very successful CEOs and people in business, and those are necessary. And what you're saying, they don't always come along with the mental health challenges, but often they do. And very often they do unbeknownst to others, even sometimes close family members, but especially the public. So if you look at many of the high achievers out there on the outside, it seems that they have a good life, perfect life. If you look at the Instagram or even friends who know them, because when it comes to being very successful and still struggling emotionally, which often comes together, we have another factor. We have another issue is that these are often very creative, sensitive beings. And imagine becoming very wealthy through what you do, but still feeling empty or feeling pain. As a result of that, you often see something we call imposter syndrome, or I'm not deserving of all of this. And especially I can't even speak to anybody that I'm not happy, I'm not fulfilled, because everybody else will look at me and like, what's he complaining about? <laughs> so that isolates even more. And it's kind of part of a vicious circle, because yeah, isolation with your pain means more pain, less access to professional help, less access to, to friends you think you can trust or who will listen to you or understand you. So often that then kind of carries on until there is a breaking point. What prompts people to seek treatment? Is it a crisis? Is there a trigger of some kind? Normally it is some kind of crisis, breaking point, pain or struggles or issues building up to a point where you just can't handle it anymore. Humans are equipped for tolerating an immense amount of suffering without breaking down. And then it can be just that one drop it can be something small. Can you give me an example? I can give you an example from my personal life. In my case, I had a complete breakdown a couple of years ago when, well, literally it was just we went on a Sunday afternoon bike ride with my kid, bless him. And he had a bit of an emotional meltdown because he didn't want to ride his bike. <laughs> <laughs> he was how old? He was four at the time. I just had to somehow get back. So I snapped for a moment. I go loud to him, which is against my values. But in that moment, I just, everything broke down for me because I looked in his eyes and I saw that yeah, he was shocked for a moment. <laughs> I was like, no, <laughs> behave now. And then I went straight to bed for a, a few hours. I had this complete emotional breakdown, start of a depressive episode. First time in my life that I ever felt something like that. And in hindsight, I realized it's been building up for months, but especially as a high achiever, when you build businesses or you continue your family's legacy, you're primed to perform, you're out there, you're a role model. And that's often your self-narrative. My self-narrative was like, I have nerves of steel. And no matter what happens, my nurse will survive. <laughs> I will handle this situation. There's light on the other side. And then it kind of feels like it comes from just kind of 
for you back over the shoulder and just slaps you in the face and like, okay, here's reality. You have a lot of theoretical knowledge about mental health and how to prevent problems and struggles, and then it can still get you. Valuable lesson in hindsight, but tough situation to go through. Often it's a buildup. It's not a one-off event or crisis that brings somebody to emotional breakdown. Thank you for sharing your story. That's very personal and yet I think highly relatable for many people. So I want to talk now about when people do seek treatment. You know, there's been that breaking point and they're ready to look at their issues and they seek you out. I know that you pride yourselves on doing things a little bit differently. So tell me about your approach to treatment and how it's different. What gives us purpose to do and be very grateful that we can do that is we can approach mental health issues in a whole different way than really any other clinic can. We only treat two or three, maximum four clients at any one time. And because we have so many resources for every single client, we can go so deep and we can connect so many dots. And over the last decade or so, we have built a reputation specialized in really connecting these dots and physical health, mental health, but also spiritual fulfillment, purpose, there's so many factors, how gut health is, how we eat our lifestyle. And if one or two are a bit out of balance or take a big hit, we can almost see it through and kind of recover ourselves. But often it's kind of this, this complex chain reaction and then people just end up in a mess and there's not just one or two screws to <laughs> tighten, but there's a whole puzzle in front of us. With mental health, it's not like you can go to a doctor and say, oh, my elbow hurts and then they do an x-ray and then they say, okay, put some ointment on it or don't exercise or you do some physiotherapy, it takes so many more resources for any mental health problem. What I find so interesting, this whole area of functional medicine, as you described, you mentioned the biochemistry of the brain and the gut. And it seems like if it can be tested, you test it and measure it, assess it and treat it. When you are running all these tests, what are some of the most common patterns that you're seeing? Well, one thing we pay a lot of attention to is all around gut health. Generally, our Western lifestyle isn't very good for both our bodies and our mind, starting with processed foods and lots of carbs and sugar and all that. And we kind of know that in theory and eating organic and all that would be good for us. But what we often don't realize is that if you chronically feed our bodies with either foods that are generally unhealthy or that are particularly not good for us as a specific individual, because we all have food intolerances, for instance. So you can eat a food that's perfectly organic, free of pesticides, or but your immune system recognizes it as a threat. It can lead to chronic inflammation. So it's not like you eat it and then uh, two minutes later you, you get stomach cramps. It's chronic and it leads to fatigue and it leads to low mood, bad sleep and all sorts of things that can result as symptoms of that. So often you wouldn't know that this feeling of brain fog that it comes from your breakfast. So that's one thing we pay a lot of attention to. And then also just the health of the gut microbiome, the bacteria that live in our gut, metabolites of those. It's something you can look at, you can see, you know, is it healthy, not healthy? That again has a massive impact on how we function, how we emotionally function. So that's something we often see because with wealth, all things equal, you have more possibility for a sedentary lifestyle. And fine wines and fine foods, all the things that we love. Listen, I am someone I relate. I have food sensitivities myself, and it truly is an inconvenient truth because once you know what you should avoid and you feel so much better, you're encouraged to do it, but it's really, really hard to then do that and go out to dinner and go to people's homes and things like that. It's like going to the gym. The first couple of weeks is tough, my God. But then when you get into that routine and you feel 
what good you're doing for yourself and your well-being, you can keep it up much easier. And then often something happens in your life and then you lose the routine and then you're back. But that's okay. Don't beat yourself up if you don't have more than 15 minutes for exercise or if you eat sugar regularly, cut it here, cut it there. That's already a step in the right direction. So you have to be pragmatic about that. Because otherwise you don't comply or what you think you should be doing and you feel bad about it. So it's kind of double the grind. At Paracelsus, treating mind, body, and spirit means a small army of professionals is assembled. When you arrive at the clinic, you're shown to a private luxury apartment outfitted with your own driver, housekeeper, chef, and a 24-hour live-in psychotherapist. The idea is to replicate as much as possible the comforts of home. Depending on the need, the therapist-to-patient ratio can be as high as 20 to 1. And it will include psychiatrists, medical doctors, nurses, nutritional scientists, acupuncturists, yoga teachers, and others. Jan tells me that collaboration within the team is key to their success. And sometimes it's an unexpected insight that leads to a breakthrough. It enhances the therapeutic process and the results. If you have three people instead of just one, each of them looking possibly at different topics with you, or looking at the same topic from a different perspective. And the three are very carefully coordinated. They talk a lot with each other, report to each other, and strategize who should focus on what. And the client is involved in that sort of decision process as well. Basically, instead of riding a bicycle by going to a therapy once a week or once every two weeks, it's a race car. And it is very important that the insights or sometimes even just the hunches or something that was said to a yoga therapist is equally transmitted to the core team of psychiatrists, living therapists, medical doctors, because sometimes that's exactly where truth lies and the next step should go towards. So information is key, like in any industry, really. <laughs> and real-time information flow in this case, because we only have a few weeks maximum with our clients whilst they're with us. So we want to make the most of that time for them. So losing one or two days by changing certain treatment modalities or certain deep types that are delayed by a few days. So curious. I mean, and one of the features, of course, is the ultimate discretion and secrecy that you offer. But how does an A-list celebrity or CEO running a global company drop out for six weeks and nobody knows? I mean, someone says, I'm going on vacation these days. We're all reachable. How is that managed? And do they still manage their affairs while they're away? One of the ruling paradigm of how we do things I call it humanistic pragmatism. And here we talk about the pragmatism, right? We just have to work with a client's reality. So we say in an ideal world, of course, if you really struggle emotionally, yeah, you should get away from things and focus on your recovery and your therapies and all that. Now, reality means for that demographic, for some of these uh, roles you mentioned, it would jeopardize possibly your whole existence in a way, what you stand for, what you've built. So the prospect of possibly losing or jeopardizing all that can be anxiety-inducing how do we deal with that? Some people really just say, well, okay, one or two weeks vacation we can handle. And there can be cover stories. If it's relevant that the public doesn't learn about mental health or addiction struggle, there are cover stories of other medical nature. Somebody can have knee surgery or has, has cardiovascular issues. And that's easily communicated. And we have to come up with stories that are serious enough so somebody can have an excuse not to <laughs> appear in any phone calls or in public for a couple of weeks, but still not kind of tank the stock market price if it's <laughs> the CEO of a listed company, for instance, right? And then pragmatism also means we can have people here just for a few days in an inpatient clinical setting. 
they fly back for a few days for board meetings or TV appearances. We've had everything you can imagine. <laughs> We've had people setting up satellite links on the on the rooftop terrace of our clinical residences because they were running a country, <laughs> stuff like that. So really, in the end, if pain is so high or the nerves just don't function anymore, there has to be a way. So by now you may be wondering, as I was, what the price tag is for all this. Well, a one-week stay typically runs between $95,000 and $120,000 US, with the average stay being six weeks. Now that's a drop in the bucket for most of their clientele, but it did raise another question in my mind. Given the commanding personalities of this demographic, people with a strong sense of urgency and outcome, how does Jan and his team instantly engage that billionaire who's got his plane waiting on the tarmac if it doesn't click? How do they get them to commit to a process that challenges the client's control and doesn't produce instant results? Absolutely right. And that's also a skill we have you know, not perfected because it's still an everyday challenge. But we learn with every client. When you come to us to heal from emotional struggles, very often denial, projection, uncomfortable truths are part of that journey. So it's our job as clinicians to very kindly, but sometimes also firmly, that's the word I was looking for, hold up the mirror and uh, just be very honest what we observe. But if, yeah, if you have your plane waiting and an army of minions just doing whatever you tell them, if it's good for you or not, then that's a bit trickier territory. Our clients are involved in the decision-making for what they want to achieve out of the treatment, how fast they want to go, how deep they want to dig, and we're just honest with them. Luckily, majority of clients come to us because they realize they need our help and decide to make the best of it. And there can still be good days, bad days. From the clients who are here semi-voluntarily because they realize, well, it's either the public or a court or a business partner or parents often <laughs> putting pressure on them to get their act together, in quotation marks. We work like people often do in substance abuse treatment programs, one day at a time. Just say, look, let's just focus on today. We understand you don't want to be here. We understand you don't see a point, but just give it a chance. You're already here. If you fly back home, you will arrive there only tomorrow. So the day is already here. So let's just see. And then we slowly build trust. And then obviously it takes more time to be able to do it. Then what happens after they leave and they return to the pressure of their lives? What kind of aftercare support is there? How often do you see people come back? You can prepare specifically for theoretical scenarios when you go back home. But reality can still hit you in the face. So it's important that A, you are aware of that. B, that you go home with a message understanding that you likely will encounter some ups and downs and some struggles and some relapses. And that's perfectly okay. I think that's the number one message. And the number two message is no matter how great you feel on the day you leave a clinic and you feel you own the world and you healed everything and you're fine now, because many people are, especially after an intense treatment, like here, we also kind of patch up not just your mind, but your body and people feel more energetic and healthy. Part of the strategy can be lifestyle changes you decide to implement at home. Some people, they hire a chef and then where they didn't have one before or they exchange chef. <laughs> Just one example, you know, get a yoga teacher to come to your house, maybe enter couples therapy after you had your intense bout of individual therapy with us. Together with you, we identify as construction sites. They all should have a strategy going forward because otherwise sooner rather than later, you find yourself back in a similar situation where why you came to us in the first place. In preparing to speak to you, I've been telling people that I was going to be interviewing you and describing the kind of testing that you do and the work you do. And people say, 
can you go there if you don't necessarily have an addiction or a mental health issue? Are you thinking of branching out into medispas? Thinking of always, that's kind of what the driven entrepreneur does when he can't sleep at night. <laughs> what else can we do? And we do have clients who they're normally only like family members or clients whom we treated with you know, severe mental health issues or clients who initially came to us for those struggles and then realized that it would do them good to occasionally return. So instead of going to the Medispa for a week of healthy diet and exercising, they come to us, we run the whole battery of lab tests, give them a bit of a refresher, some IV treatments and a mini refresher program. Statistically, that works best for long-term recovery and feeling good in your skin and your mind. Before we wrap up, last set of questions. We've been talking about wealth, other people's wealth, and now I'd like to ask you a few questions just to get a sense of your view of money and your relationship with money. So, Jan, how do you define wealth? Well, I've come to define wealth as what makes us fulfilled, rich, wealthy, in a more broader sense. What most people say, if they've had a bit of life experience, and I guess I, I count myself among those, real wealth is healthy relationships. It's a healthy mind and body. And you don't have to own a single dollar if you're healthy and happy and if you have good relationships and you're still amazingly wealthy. Now, money is just a matter of accounting in a way. When we talk about material wealth, of course, it's all things equal, nice to have. Most people wish to have at least enough to have certain comforts, certain luxuries. What's tricky is our relationship to it and when is it enough. I just have to get there and then I will be happy. That will never happen. That will never happen. That's what we have to just be very much aware of. Most people have to learn it the hard way. All the fairy tales, everything we learn as kids, everybody tells you money doesn't buy happiness, all that. You have to experience it yourself to really see that truth. And it's fine. It's part of the journey. You know? Well said. I couldn't agree more. On the continuum of spenders and savers, where would you say you are? I'm probably at the far end of the spending side. <laughs> <laughs> I always knew that. So I have just strong confidence in me knowing that there's still massive opportunities out there. At some point, but rather late in life, probably my late 20s, early 30s, I just, just developed for myself that strategy. If there's more money in the bank account at the end of the month, it's going okay. But obviously, if you have a cushion where you feel comfortable that whatever happens, you can access best healthcare in theory, then you can chase your dreams. That's definitely nice to have to just sleep well at night. But I'm a big believer in we can't take money to the other side. I mean, the pharaohs believed that, and then, uh, I know, maybe they managed, <laughs> we wouldn't know, right? Mm -hmm. But I believe what we have here in terms of material wealth is we will leave behind. And then, yeah, it's a question, do you want to leave it behind? Do you want to grow something massive and leave that behind for future generations? But then you have the responsibility to prepare them well, because otherwise it could be more the curse than a blessing, right? Spend on yourself. Don't feel guilty about spending on yourself. Find a balance and spending on others and mitigating or healing the pains of the world. There can be great purpose in charity. Yeah, don't feel guilty also on a few splurges here and there. Good for you. I could use some help with that. <laughs> what is the best piece of financial advice you've ever been given or you've given to someone else? Financial advice, maybe not in terms of how you best invest, all of that. But generally when it comes to advice around money, buying things, even if you can afford amazing things, just pay attention to if that really fulfills you or makes you happy. And if you see a pattern that it doesn't, then try to break that pattern. And when it comes to significant wealth, and you often see that with second generation onwards, I mean, you just have this spending power at your disposal. It's often just, just spending time shopping, binging, 
from handbags to cars to sometimes just boats and planes, depending on which wealth level you're at. But the short-term dopamine hits, the high you get from that, it tends to wear off quicker and quicker. That's a big risk factor. So that's the best advice that you can give to people of wealth, but at the same time, it's often a lesson that they have to learn themselves. I want to thank my guest, Jan Gerber, founder and CEO of Paracelsus Recovery, for taking us inside this extraordinary world of truly bespoke mental health treatment. For more information, you can visit their website, paracelsus-recovery.com. And if you or someone you know is struggling with mental health, we encourage you to seek professional help or contact a mental health helpline in your country. Thanks for listening to Serious Coin. If you enjoyed the content, please leave us a rating or a review. It helps us to be found by more listeners. And don't forget to subscribe so you won't miss an episode. Thanks for listening. Serious Coin is provided for your general interest only, and nothing we discuss should be taken as investment, tax, legal, or other professional advice. Always talk to a licensed professional before you make any financial decisions.